When it comes to banking, is small beautiful? We debate. You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. It is Wednesday. I'm Matt Copenheffer. This here is David Hansen. And David, I hate to have to bring this up, but you lost in our fantasy football playoffs yesterday. So you're basically done. What are you going to do with all of that free time? Allocating it all to focus on my fantasy cricket team. That is just getting heated up. Very competitive. I, I hear. I hear it is. I hear that's yes. a pretty cutthroat. Uh, a lot of money crowd. on A lot of yeah. A lot of rupees on the line. How could you do fantasy cricket without a lot of money on the that's line? That's what we did. Let's go to the headlines. First headline of the day. We've got the Wall Street Journal. The headline is "Smaller Mortgage Lenders Lead the Field." And basically what this was looking at was the fact that smaller lenders, lenders outside, I think they were looking at Out the, of the top, top five, five yeah. uh, taking a larger share of the, of the mortgage market. Uh, this was between 2009 and 2013. The, the Wall Street Journal said that the, the 2009 share for the top five was 60%. In 2013, it was 39%. Um, or so, Sorry, that was flipped around. The smaller, the mm-hmm. smaller lenders now have 60% versus 39% in 2009. Uh, I'm not sure how much I want to take away from this in terms of, particularly in terms of investors thinking about the top five. You could hear a headline like this and see a number like that and say, oh, well, maybe the largest mortgage lenders are losing a ton of market share. To some extent, that's true, but a lot of this is the impact of, of Countrywide because Countrywide in 2007 was the mortgage market it's leader. Yeah, in 2007, $408 billion in originations. Wells Fargo was number two at that point with $272 billion in originations. I mean, just killing it. So B of A took them over and, and had still had a lot of that flow in 2009, and B of A was number one in 2009. Since then, things haven't been so great, and B of A has cut back significantly. So when we look at the, the Wall Street Journal also had a chart that showed 2011 through, through two, versus 2013, uh, Wells Fargo down a little bit, but relatively flat. Uh, J.P. Morgan's originations were up. Quicken's were up. Uh, U.S. Bank Corp's were up. Bank of America's well down. So I think, if anything, for the top five, this is a story of the disappearance of Countrywide and Bank of America's seeding of ground. And even the recent movements we've seen Bank of America, all the big guys, Wells Fargo, Citigroup, they've all cut back staff as refinancing has come down. And then that's allowed smaller lenders to come in and take a little bit more share in that space. But I see that a little bit more as, okay, the big profits have been made. We saw with Wells Fargo and J.P. Morgan made huge profits mm-hmm. uh, over the past couple years with refinancing. So I kind of see it as there's this, there was this carcass out there, and they were the big lions that came and feasted on this. And now the vultures are coming in, and they're still going to pick at the market share. But the big it profits... something disgusting. Yeah, that's what we do here. Uh, the big profits, I think, are gone. We're going to see margins be a little bit smaller as competition eats up. So you're up. saying that these smaller banks are feasting on a dead, rotting carcass? Is what you... That is the American people, yes. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> the oh God. That's even no, worse. No, 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 no. What I take away from it is, is when I think about... When I hear the word smaller banks, immediately in my mind... It goes to like the really small, that's not necessarily the right. case. I think this is a lot of opportunity for a lot of the middle market banks that we talk some about, but not as much, like a SunTrust, Huntington Bank shares, um, M&T Bank, some of the banks like that, maybe more opportunity in that mortgage market with the disappearance of Countrywide and its massive, massive deal flow. Yep. All right, moving on to the second headline. This one is from Bloomberg. Wall Street sweats out Volcker rule impact 
on revenue. We talked about this yesterday, how exiting hedge funds, exiting private equity is not that big of a deal. But this article is saying that the possibility of market making, so basically buying from a client and holding on to a security and then trying to sell it off another side, that's how uh, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley make a lot of their money. JP Morgan is the biggest one in there in terms of revenue, and they're not sure how the rule is going to shake out and impact this revenue. So there's a little bit of worry there. But Lloyd Blankfein had a quote from, I think it was last month, he's saying, hey, if anything gets really messed up and affects clients, there's going to be such a wave of backlash here that they're just going to fix it. So I, don't, I wouldn't be too worried that this is going to really hurt revenue. Yeah, that was one of my, one of my two big points there is that, number one, this is, this is market making. This is something that needs to happen. This isn't necessarily this isn't speculation. Um, so I don't think the Fed is going and the Fed and the regulators are going to try to get in the way of that. Number two is that, and, and when it comes to market making, there was another good quote in that Bloomberg article, somebody basically saying, in the used car market, you can't go to a used car dealership and say, hey, well, you can buy and sell these used cars, but you can't speculate on the price mm-hmm. of them. It's, it, ha, some aspect of that is involved in that business, same as the market making. The other point is that the banks are adaptable. Now, I'm not going to say that this mar- the market making isn't going away, but when new regulations come, over the decades we've seen so much change in the banking industry and in the securities industry, and the highest quality banks, the best run banks, the Goldman Sachs of the world, have found ways to succeed significantly mm-hmm. under the rules that exist. And just a quick clarification for anyone listening who's not really sure what market making is. So if you're a big hedge fund out there and you hold an asset that like it's, not, it's not your, yeah, like you, it's not your run-of-the-mill common stock, say it's a little bit more liquid, but you want to get rid of it, you can go to Goldman Sachs and say, hey, I want to sell this. They'll buy it from you and try to find a, a person on the other end to try to sell it for. So it's for these more a liquid products. It's not just us trading Apple stock uh, across the exchanges here. So that's or if I want to rephrase it, they are making a market. They are making that they market. They are making a market. So there you stock. go. All right, third headline of the day. We're going to the Financial Times to round it out. EU fines banks 1.7 billion euros for fixing global interest rates. Uh, here's a little bit from the article. Deutsche Bank and Royal Bank of so- Scotland accepted taking part in both cartels. The, both cartels, that's... I love the, how they call it a cartel. Euro, oh, yeah, it's great. <laughs> Eurobor and uh, the, the yen, uh, the yen LIBOR, or whatever, mm-hmm. the yen LIBOR equivalent. Both cartels will pay fines of 725 million euro and 391 million euro, respectively. Societe Generale will pay 446 million euro for attempting to rig the Eurobor benchmark, uh, blah, blah, blah. Yen LIBOR. Yeah, did you like that? Impressive. Yeah. Uh, For Yen LIBOR-related abuses, JP Morgan accepted a fine of 79.8 million euro and Citi 70 million euro. So we do see the U.S. banks getting in on that action there. JP Morgan, however, is going to fight the the charges against fixing Eurobor. the, uh, we're, we're continuing to see shakeouts here, and I should also mention that Barclays and UBS would have faced massive fines on both of these, but they were kind of the whistleblowers alerting to the to the action there. I mean, <laughs> they have already just taken it right. on the chin with these, and so they were um, they were exempted from these penalties. Uh, J.P. Morgan will fight the Eurobor. Uh, we're continuing to see the fallout from these rate rigging scandals. The cartel. The line. I mean, that's it's it's funny that they're, that they're putting it that way, but it is pretty interesting. I, not just that we've got these banks trying to individually move around these these benchmarks, but that they were working together and collaborating to do that. That's a little scary. That's um, we'll call it suboptimal. Very suboptimal. Nothing to add. More more fines to come. 
Probably, but it's pretty insignificant in the scheme. These banks are huge. We think, I mean, Sokgen's an enormous bank. This isn't some community bank. So. You mean Societe, Societe General or whatever you want to say. Mine's way better than so, yours. Yeah. I think they'll Just be okay. saying. Uh, focus for today. We're going, to, we're going to small banks. We're going to talk about small banks here because Matthew Iglesias at, at Slate wrote an article about how there are too many banks. 6,000 banks out there. Mm-hmm. He says there's too many, and that's causing problems. And then uh, a columnist at American Banker yep. took him to task uh, saying, hey, you're wrong. Dead wrong. De- de- dead wrong. Dead wrong. That's even worse than wrong. Okay, so I think Iglesias is right. I think there are too many, I think there are too many banks out there. It creates problems. And a lot of those banks aren't necessarily good banks. When it comes to regulation, 90.7% of assets in the system are with banks with a billion or more in assets. That, that's 668 banks. Mm-hmm. 668 banks. The other 9.3% of assets, that's among, spread among 6,223 banks. Less than 10% of assets in over 6,000 banks. So in terms of trying to regulate... You've got all of this regulation that needs to be spread over all of these thousands, literally thousands of institutions for a very small portion of the assets. And when you talk about the risk to insured deposits, which is what we're really all worried about, mm-hmm. uh, 89% of the total deposits at the smallest banks are insured deposits. So those are in deposits that are insured by the FDIC. For the largest banks, less than 50% are insured deposits. Less than 50% of the deposits there are insured deposits. Mm -hmm. So when we worry about the risk to those, much more at smaller banks. Uh, 8.6% of all banks were unprofitable in the third quarter, but 13.9% of the banks with less than 100 million in assets were unprofitable. That's more than 2,000 banks, that that group is more than 2,000 banks, and Mm -hmm. 13.9% were were unprofitable. I know you're probably going to come back at me and say, yes, but net interest margins are so low and these smaller banks depend on them. The smaller banks actually had higher net interest margins than the larger banks, 3.71% in the third quarter versus 3.13% for the largest banks. Uh, I'm not going to argue that there's no place for smaller banks. I think there is. Just like I think there's a place for really good, small, independent booksellers in the age of Borders and Amazon. Mm-hmm. But they have to be good, small banks with competitive advantage, good management, and not just banks that are, that are small and have a special place in our hearts and are hanging on because of tiered regulation. Passionate. Passionate you response bet. from you. Uh, so you one bet. of his, his first point was that these banks are usually poorly managed. And he didn't point to any metrics to suggest that he says, well, if people mess up on Wall Street, these are the people that couldn't even hack it on Wall Street and they're running all these community banks. I think that's a little bit of a ridiculous point. I think they're going to be very well-run community banks, small banks. They understand the community. They can make good loans because they understand the economy in that area. So I think that's a little bit of malarkey there, if you will. uh, I know that I will, but I like (laughs) your use of malarkey. And you talk about the regulation. Yes, there's a lot of them. And does it make sense that less than 10% of assets are in these 6,000 banks that we have to regulate, and it's so hard to regulate them, but it's an easier business to understand. They're basically just taking deposits and lending it out in their community, so it's not like they're doing these insanely complex things here. So I don't think the regulation's that hard to do there, and even if, they, even if one of these were to fail, it doesn't, it's not a systematic failure here. It doesn't kill the economy, so I, d- I don't buy that either. And the question of can they compete, and I have mixed feelings on this. 
if they try to play the same game as Bank of America, they can't compete. I mean, it's it's David and Goliath here. And we look at this from an investor. Malcolm Gladwell says you, David can beat Goliath. He can beat Goliath. And also that story also says yeah, that's, David that's, does that's beat That's the story. <laughs> uh, they can beat them by playing a different game here. And I think if you try to, if these small banks try to take the big ones head on, they're going to lose. They don't have the marketing budget, the technology. It's not the same. But if they can focus on customer experience, making good loans in that area, and that's one of the points that uh, Rob Blackwell at American Banker makes is they're vital to credit in these smaller markets that the big banks would just overlook. Um, so those are important to, to those communities there. And he points out that banks between $1 billion and $10 billion assets had a better ROE than the other peer groups. So these smaller banks, we can't just say, okay, everyone below kind of the enormous banks is a community bank. I think if you look at those regional banks, those can be very good institutions, not just the ones that are 100, 100, or 100 million in assets there. So I'm not buying it. I think there is a place, maybe not for 6,000, but I, don't, I think Iglesias was looking at a, a world with dozens. I don't think that's mm. viable there. I think 4,000? Maybe that's still a lot of banks. <laughs> we can cut off almost. You just, three, you just want to go ahead. We can almost cut off three three thousand there. But Fed, Fed, FDIC can come and put you in charge. You'll go around and pick them out. I, I think I think we could use less, um, and we'd be fine. So well, there, I don't know. There I'm, there are those arguments, D- David. You made a, a commendable pro <laughs> pro argument for for smaller banks. Uh, I'm sure we have listeners and viewers that are passionate on this subject. Uh, we have an email address, WTMI at fool.com. We're on Twitter at TMF Financials. We'd love to hear what other people think about this topic and where, where, we, might have, uh, uh, where we might be right or wrong. And cool. speaking of our email address, let's go on to our mailbag. Again, that's WTMI at fool.com. We love getting emails from people. Um, we just like when, when people talk to us, really. Mm-hmm. Lonely. That's, that's really what it's, yeah, that's pretty much it. We just sit in this, sit in this studio. Drew S. writes to us, I was wondering if you could provide your thoughts on the reinsurance sector given the benign hurricane season, which is positive for earnings, but highly competitive pricing environment given the flood of alternative capital into the market from hedge funds and pension funds. Also would love to hear your comments and any investing ideas you might have with regard to publicly traded hedge fund-backed reinsurers such as Third Point Re and Greenlight Re. So, uh, first of all, thanks for the question, Drew. That's a, I like that question. That's an interesting question. He almost answered part of the question in his question. How do you I say? Thought. Well, when he talks about kind of the benign hurricane season, and that's been great for earnings, that is one of the concerns when you look at the sector. And the flood of other capital, that has definitely happened. And you have to wonder, who are the really good insurers out there? Because when there's no catastrophe, it's kind of easy to be an insurer. You just write the policies, you collect the premiums, and... Invest it, it doesn't really matter. You can still have good earnings there. Sure. So I think it is concerning, but once we do have those catastrophes, I think it's a cyclical thing and it'll, most of it, or I think a lot of it will be wiped out in time. Not wiped out, but people will be leaving the sector when interest rate changes, when catastrophes happen. So I think it's just right now, it's not the best time. Well, the, the benign hurricane season, yeah, I, I, I look at that as uh, that's not necessarily a positive or a negative. That's just. That's what's going on right now. That's sort of the timing of the the cycles of the of the weather. Uh, eventually, the you pay the piper in this business. Eventually, you pay the piper if you've done it, your reserving, if you've uh, written your policies well over time. You'll be okay when that happens. Um, so I'm not. 
a given season I'm not too concerned about. It's really the longer-term trends and how, they ha- and, and, and how they're handling their business and how their business performed over longer periods of time. The addition of the alternative capital coming into the business, a little bit more concerning. Uh, the, the, the flip, the, so the short-term, the shorter-term concern for that is that it is, it's hurting rates, and mm-hmm. it, it makes it more difficult to write business um, at, at, good, at good rates right now. Um, longer term, the question is, is this smart money or is this dumb money that's coming into the, into the industry? Because if it's dumb money, it'll eventually get, get mm-hmm. washed out when you have big catastrophes that, are going, that you're going to have to pay the piper. Right. Um, so that remains to be seen, I think, whether that's a, that's a long-term negative or just a short-term negative. But generally speaking, it's a cyclical business. Capital pours mm-hmm. in at times and you have trouble, you have soft rates, and then uh, something happens and the rates harden back up. And, and it's hard to to get a clear picture of this stuff. I mean, we've asked around with, with industry experts and saying, is there any data that, that you look to and saying, okay, there's a lot of capital flooding in right now. It's a very soft market. And you really have to go with kind of just what are people saying? What are, what are companies saying? What are experts saying about the market? So it's hard to point and say, there's a lot of capital that's eventually going to leave. We don't have those hard numbers that really give us a clear right. picture. But, but it is kind of a bummer right now if you're, if you're looking at the reinsurance industry because you're hearing a lot of the insurers talk about uh, rates shoring up, mm-hmm. uh, getting, getting better rates, being able to raise rates. Uh, but in the reinsurance business, haven't seen that as much uh, yet. So I, I think overall, really, the, the, my bigger answer to that, to that issue is that you're looking for reinsurers that are, that are well-run and that are doing good business, and you're going to have less concern over the long term uh, of the, the alternative capital coming in, because I think more likely than not that's dumb money. And you'll have less concern about the, you know, the eventual hurricane season or, or whatever it may be that causes the big So, so to quickly get to his second point, do you see green light and, and third point as dumb money. I mean, they don't have extensive histories in the reinsurance business. They have the big hedge fund managers behind them with Einhorn and Loeb, but how do you feel about these? Yeah, here's, here's a differentiation between the two. Greenlight, I'll, I'll say right away, Greenlight I like a little bit better. And the reason I like it a little bit better is because if you're going to bring hedge fund money into it, I want to see that they're uh, focused, first and foremost, on the reinsurance business. Part and partial of, this, of the insurance business in general is taking the premiums and, and investing them. But I don't want to see that necessarily. Uh, I don't want to put the cart before the horse mm-hmm. here. So third point in its uh, in its offering in its uh, initial public offering, which was just uh, a couple documents. months ago, it's, right? Exactly. Yeah. They said we are a Bermuda-based property and casualty reinsurer with a reinsurance and investment strategy that we believe differentiates us from our competitors. Our goal is to deliver attractive equity returns to shareholders by combining profitable reinsurance underwriting with superior investment management provided by Third Point, our investment manager. To me, it's kind of like okay, we. Do do this reinsurance thing, but then we invest it really well with Third Point. Uh, Greenlight, in its 10K filing, writes, our goal is to build long-term shareholder value by offering customized reinsurance solutions in markets where capacity and alternatives are limited, which we believe will provide us with favorable long-term returns on equity. So more of a a focus on our reinsurance business and how we run that competitively well and, and profitably. Yeah, and the last thing I'll say is between the two, Einhorn has more skin in the game with Greenlight than Loeb does with, with Third Point. So if you're worried about them saying, oh, I'm kind of done with the reinsurance, Einhorn's got more skin in this game. Yeah, so if you give me a choice between two, I'm going Greenlight. All right. Moving on to our game for today, we've got a little Rank It. Rank It, we take a, a, a sub-industry grouping, 
and rank them. It's really that's that what we do. simple, pretty much. <laughs> today, uh, today we're going with mortgage REITs. Uh, I don't think we've done rankings of the mortgage REITs yet. So, David, why don't you start us off with your rankings of the mortgage REITs? All right. Number one overall, maybe not a surprise, I'm a shareholder of Annaly Capital Management, still trading at a big discount, almost at some of the cheapest valuations it's seen in its history right now. Not a great time, though, but a good management team. Uh, Wellington Denahan's been there for a while. She's been there for a very long time, so I think they have uh, a good management team. My next couple down there on the list, two harbors. Like 30, or 20 years, 20-some years now, right? Long time. long time. I have two harbors, Invesco Mortgage Capital and Western Asset Mortgage Capital, and I'll say those all three together because those are all hybrids. Uh, they do agency mortgage-backed securities, but they're also venturing into securitization, non-agency. I think that's potentially the way of the future here. Two Harbors, I know that's probably your number one over there. Great management team, uh, some great minds over there in that kind of asset management world uh, that Two Harbors comes from. So those are my next three. And American Capital Agency, down there at five. I don't think you have them on your list, but I'm starting to come around a little bit more on their strategy of being more defensive, taking that leverage down. So those are my five. What do all you right, say? let's go ahead and put up my list. I've got all of three. Couldn't even get to five. I didn't feel like getting to five. This is not a business. I, I, I'm not. I'm not crazy about this. This business. This industry. It's essentially talking about uh, investing in a mutual fund. Uh, it's all about the manager. It's all about how they're managing a, for the most part, a portfolio of uh, of mortgage investments, uh, as opposed to having like a, a sustainable business that's producing a good. If you look at the annual reports for most of these companies, the focus is on. We want to buy and sell these securities to produce returns for our shareholders. And I would prefer to be involved in a business that's producing something for a customer base um, and, and earning anyway. So i got to ask you, why, why do you had Newcastle on there? What, what's the deal with okay, that? Okay, so Newcastle, I'm not going to go to bat for Newcastle <laughs> quite yet to say uh, I think this is a great company to invest in. But as opposed to uh, a lot of the other mortgage REITs, there's a... They're spread across a lot of different areas. They have a lot of uh, flexibility in terms of where they're putting their money, uh, getting a little bit more creative, um, actually investing in some, some physical properties. Mm-hmm. Um, I think so, they invest in newspapers, too. They're all over the place. Is that right? I think so. Don't quote me on that. I I'm won't. I'm pretty sure. I won't, because I'm not sure about that. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Newcastle, I think, is one worth taking a closer look at. Invesco, on your list, I almost put it on my list, um, but didn't quite make it. Uh, Two Harbors, I'm very excited about. Annaly, if, if you're going to invest in one of sort of these pure play mortgage REITs that's a true mortgage REIT, I think Annaly is the place to be. All right. Finally, closing it out, Twitter sphere. David, first tweet. First tweet is very exciting. Oh, this is the second tweet. We'll go to the second tweet. Um, this one is from Jordan Wathen. He is at JWTHN. He says, NFL cheerleaders make $50 to $75 per game, but the article fails to price, option, price the option of marrying an NFL star. So only fifty bucks a game. That's like nothing. But you could marry the amount of the amount of work that can go in. You get a front front row seat to the game, though. That's not worth it. You but get a front you, row seat to the game sitting on your couch at home. Yeah, but it's not the same. Like you said, you you, you could, could like run up and down the sideline to try to catch the. Besides, they're they're working. They don't get to. Just who's the highest paid seat. player in the NFL right now? Do you have any idea? Any idea? No, but I mean Peyton Manning, maybe. Maybe. Maybe if you can marry Peyton Manning. I'm not marrying him. <laughs> I like him. He's a funny guy, but I'm not marrying him. Maybe. Yeah. All right. All right, let's go to the second tweet. I, I, think, I think it would be interesting to see Jordan try to price that option. Okay. We'll challenge him. 
headwinds ahead from housing. This is from Housing Wire. That's at Housing Wire. And, uh, and one of the key headwinds that this tweet, uh, the, well, the article that the tweet links out to, uh, one of the key headwinds that they're talking about is a reduced inventory uh, in housing that maybe will cut down on, on activity in the market. Uh, I'm not sure how concerned I am about that. It seems like a short-term kind of thing. It's not really a problem. I mean, it's kind of, I mean, when demand's outstripping supply, that's not, it's kind of a good problem to have, you know? Yep. I, I mean, it's if you're looking at, at home builders. I mean, if you're looking at a KB Homes or Lennar, maybe this is a this is a problem that's very exciting because mm-hmm. as that as that inventory out there dwindles, um, I forget the exact number of uh, months remaining. It was, it was something like f- under five, mm-hmm. under five months of supply right. re- related uh, remaining. So if you're looking at a KB Home or a Lennar or somebody like that, this may be exciting mm-hmm. because the the lower inventory means that that more new home building uh, may be an option here. Um, also, if you're a homeowner, that's probably exciting as well because, as we know from Econ 101, lower supply uh, can often lead to uh, lead to higher prices. And what we've said about Lennar and KB Home. It- on this show before, and Morgan Housel always talks about it. Is yes, there's this big opportunity. Yeah, there's the prices jump out there. A little bit. But if you're interested in that, there may be opportunity. But make sure you do kind of your valuation uh, study there, and make sure it makes sense, and you're not just blindly throwing in your, your money to the home builders and say, oh, well, they're going to build homes. It's a guarantee. Isn't that mostly what you do? Just I do. blindly throw throw your money. I do, things? but I don't. I don't think other people should. <laughs> Just fantasy football. Yes, and exactly. fantasy cricket. Fantasy blindly cricket. throw money at fantasy cricket players. Well, that's a good. Who's your bowler? Okay. <laughs> I can't tell gonna, you that. I'm going to reveal that. <laughs> all right. I think that's all we got for today. Again, our email address, WTMI at fool.com. Our Twitter address is at TMF Financials. I'm Matt Copenheffer. This here is David, the bowler, the mean bowler, Hanson. Uh, that's it for today. We'll see you tomorrow. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.